Hi, I'm Biz. I'm a working parent with a kid and a teen. It's been 10 years since the show began, and a lot has changed on the show and in the world. But by elevating the voices of others, we have learned we are not alone, and we are doing a good job. This is still a show about life after giving life. This is One Bad Mother. This week on One Bad Mother, more burning. We continue to talk about the long-lasting impact of medical myths with Eleanor Claghorn, author of Unwell Women. Plus, Biz sees it all. Woo! Woo! This is freaking. I I did it. I did it, and I'm really proud of myself. Um, I got the whole family vaccinated for rabies. Because a couple weeks ago, when we were on vacation, there was a bat in the house, in my bedroom. And that led me down a whole lot of research (laughs) on the internet and calling the pediatrician and calling the emergency room and calling the primary doctor and calling the urgent care and finding out if what we need to do. And the answer was everyone in the house needs to be vaccinated for rabies because a bat can bite you and you might not even know it. You might not feel it. It might not leave a mark. And if that bat has rabies, then that means certain death. So that is what I've been dealing with the past couple of weeks is the multiple rounds of shots oh. for all the members of my family, including several hour long trips to the ER and then follow ups to urgent care because it's four it's four parts to the shot. You have to first yeah. get a whole bunch of shots and then you have to three days later get another shot and then another four days later get another shot and then another week later get another shot. And this is for my six-year-old, my oh. eight-year-old, and my husband and I. And we all had to do it. And then we had to get the rest of the people in the house informed about it. And we got our last shots this weekend, and we're done. And we got it done, and no one's going to die of rabies. And I can I can breathe a sigh of relief now. So yay vaccines. And also this is a PSA. If there's a bat in your house, you have to go get the shot. Because by the time symptoms of rabies appear too late and there's nothing they can do so vaccines for the win and now my kids somehow are like no longer afraid of needles because they've had Ah. so many shots in the past two weeks so i don't know if that's you know trauma they've now endured or a win so we'll see doing a good job so are you you are doing a great job holy guacamole that is that is that is a serious undertaking. Like everywhere you go, people should be standing, giving you applause because no one wants to get that many shots. That, I mean, six and eight, that is intense. I do, Let's all think back to, I mean, Ellis almost took off in a parking lot when we had to get the vaccine for the COVID. Like... These are intense shots. I know you sat through screaming. I know you sat through crying. I know you sat through begging and pleading. And it is so emotionally draining. And I am just, I am, I am in awe of you. You are doing such an amazing job taking care of your family. I am just, go, go, go. wow, that is something you probably did not want to do. I wouldn't have wanted to do it, but you did it. 
because you had to do it. And you deserve rewards for that. I think you are amazing. Speaking of amazing, I have an announcement. Everybody, hold on to your seats. I have seen Ellis's feet. <laughs> for anybody who has been listening to the show for, I'm going to say, about three years now, uh, Ellis just decided to stop showing us their feet. This has been a long-going fail. I think, though now I think it's sort of a genius that maybe we've established some sort of bond of trust or whatever. Anyway, I knew there was nothing wrong with the feet because he's walking around and running around fine and he doesn't hurt when he puts on socks or he's in the bathtub and puts shoes on, blah, 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 blah. And we went in to get their physical months late, <laughs> just months late. So now our new cycle thank you, insurance, is every summer we now get his winter birthday physical. Anyway, uh, goes in, great physical. I say, before the physical's over, Ellis, don't forget, the doctor has to see your feet. Because, you know, he's just sitting there in underpants and socks and his little robe. <laughs> I said, don't forget, the doctor has to see your feet because it's a complete physical. I'll step outside and the doctor just doesn't miss a beat. I'm going to step outside. They don't really like us seeing their feet, but you're the doctor. You have to make sure that Ellis is healthy. So I step out, leave the door cracked with my ear against the door, and I hear the doctor. I ask him all the same questions I've asked. And the doctor says, is this bothering you? Does that bother you? Blah, blah, blah. No, your feet are very healthy. And then I come back in and we get home and Ellis announces that his feet are very healthy. And first, he's going to hold a raffle to see who gets to see their feet. So we were like, okay, still trying to be very unimpressed by feet because, you know, we don't want to mess this up. So out comes a box of rocks. You blindly pick a rock. And if it's a rock, you don't win. If it's a crystal, if it's like a gem, like one of our crystals, because you remember this house is made of rocks, you win. So I pick and did not get I picked a rock. <laughs> like Charlie Brown picked a rock. So I just casually, okay. And then Stefan, I think, won. But I didn't follow up. I wasn't like, I want to see two. Then later that night, Alice just casually wanders into the bedroom and is like, you know what? I think I'm just not going to wear socks for a while. And then he's like, ooh, it's so weird being barefoot. I mean, guys, they have worn socks. All the time. When they're in the bathtub, they cover their feet with washcloths, right? Like if he had to take his socks off, like because he wanted to go get in the pool, he would curl his toes under. And like, I don't know. But now I get to see those cute feet all the time. There ain't nothing wrong with those feet. I mean, those nails are a little long. But like the world needs new record setters. So anyway, that is very exciting. Speaking of exciting, I am excited to continue Part two of the discussion we had last week with Eleanor Claghorn, author of Unwell Women, talking about the long-lasting impact of medical myths when it comes to women's bodies. Spoiler alert, they never wanted to look under the hood. Anywho, let's settle in for the rest of that conversation. Please take a moment to remember, if you're friends of the hosts of One Bad Mother, you should assume that when we talk about other moms, we're talking about you. If you are married to the host of One Bad Mother, we definitely are talking about you. Nothing we say constitutes professional parenting advice. 
advice. Miss and Teresa's children are brilliant, lovely, and exceedingly extraordinary. Nothing said on this podcast about them implies otherwise. In talking about pain, that falls into definitely this theme of it falling back on the woman in terms of responsibility. And this is still today when it comes to labor and giving birth. The pain experienced in labor, and this is from a whatever quote-unquote normal healthy birth to births with complications, whatever that pain was, women deserved it. It was, quote, most desirable, salutary, and conservative manifestation of life force. It's God-given agony. Love that one. And helped mothers love their babies more. (laughs) We should revisit that one, everybody. (laughs) And then lastly, I, in supporting my thesis on pain, God, I wish I was back in college. There are three points that this one doctor, a Dr. Meigs, I believe, Mm -hmm. that's how you Mm -hmm. pronounce it, had made saying many obstetric physicians objected passionately to chloroform, which had just started being used. And I love that you have this side story about Queen Elizabeth, who's like, this is the best shit ever. Yep. She was into that stuff. She was very into that stuff. Was the best. She's like, this makes this tedious, worst part of marital life bearable. You know, she hated pregnancy so much. And when she got her hands on that chloroform, she was like, oh man, I woke up, I felt ill. And hey, guess what? Had a sleep baby. She yeah. was so into it. <laughs> she was. And I love that because I also hate pregnancy. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so some, like Meigs, argued that one, labor pain was natural. I, I numbered this, everybody. Why? <laughs> argued labor pain was natural and necessary. Two, thought chloroform was highly dangerous and resisted its use on religious grounds. And three, some feared... <laughs> Some feared its intoxicating properties would rid women of inhibition and reduce them to sexually depraved beasts. See? Summer read. Yep. But all three Beach of, read. <laughs> beach read. There's a lot of fear that women were going to, to uh, become sex fiends. Yeah. And might I add, during labor. During oh, I know. labor. <laughs> Gross. Are you like, it's like the lack of true, even interest or curiosity in what Mm -hmm. women are going through Mm -hmm. is shocking. Anyway, but they're all arguments based on a man's assumed rights over women. None of these have anything to do with the woman at all. I mean, besides make her life miserable. Yep. And that went on for a really long time and is connected with shame, which is really a tool that is wrapped up in medical history of women. Can we talk a little bit about shame? Absolutely. So shame is really something that we see imposed upon women's feelings about their bodies or in general upon women's bodies from more or less around the sort of beginnings of Christianity The ancient Greeks talked about shame. They talked about women feeling this sort of intense shame around their bodies in revealing their secrets, you know, their bodily secrets and intimate concerns to male doctors. 
But shame is something that's really instilled and baked into medical control comes up from around the beginnings of Christianity and really gets hammered home during the Middle Ages, during the medieval period, when essentially medical knowledge was in the hands of churchmen who believed because of the Virgin Mary, the mother, that the ideal mother was one who gave birth without ever having that marital role in the hay. <laughs> yep. They really want the again, ideal mother. Really know yep. how bodies work. And they were like, listen, <laughs> the rest of you human women, you're all corrupted, you're all polluting, you're all dirty and defiling because you weren't able to have a virgin birth. Look at you and your and your wombs and your cervixes and your <laughs> godly, ungodly sewers of bodies. Right. <laughs> So they really, you know, created this aura of suspicion and mistrust because they believed that the female body, always closer to the earth, right, always more fluid and porous and, you know, leaking left and right all over the show. (laughs) (laughs) They really believed that this made women polluting, this made women dirty and defiling. And only the most pious women who were who approached the piety and purity of someone like Mary could even hope to be kind of away from this well, defiling shame. Well, now I shame. have to wonder, I'm sorry, now I have to wonder, when they mean virgin birth, did she menstruate? I mean, are we... This ma- is a good question. Did Thank Mary you. menstruate? <laughs> they used to debate this in the Middle Ages. They were like, okay, so... She fed him with her milk and they used to believe that milk was caused by menstrual blood, right? It was like <laughs> menstrual blood getting all concocted yep. and, and turning into milk. Yeah. If she fed the Christ child yes. with her own boob, yeah. did she menstruate? Where did the blood go? It's and then a did very everybody just stop talking because they were like, ew. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, can you not? Oh, oh ew. Gross. Stop. <laughs> They were very sensitive, those medieval churchmen. They were like, Mm. ew, but no. Anyway, (laughs) so they have this real paradox. You have this idealized mother, this idealized reproductive being who is Mary, the Virgin Mary. And then on the other hand, you have the licentious, overly tempting, you know, sexy beast that was Eve who went around causing all the sin. She wanted to learn something. Out and look learn. where it got her. It got her punished. It did. And it also got all the women on earth punished on her behalf. Oh, yeah, and, thanks. Yeah, <laughs> the pain of childbirth. And they used to call it Eve's curse, you know. This was Eve's curse. So it's what we had to endure because Eve wanted to Google something. <laughs> I know. She wa- yeah, she wanted to Google it. She wanted to learn. Yeah. She's just like, you know what? I want to look this up for myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Anyway, continue with shame. <laughs> so making women feel this intense shame about their bodies, basically making them feel perpetually guilty because they're not virgin birthers, was a really neat way of distancing women from not just their own bodily experience, but also from their own knowledge about their bodies. This gave male church leaders, male medics, male medical writers, the monopoly over the human body, over the the female body especially. And this was also very convenient because as we move through 
the Middle Ages. We also see a sort of more or less blanket ban on women from becoming professional physicians. And as we approach this, you know, sort of knowledge grab that was happening by men, by, by Christian men, what we also see is the beginnings of the persecution of women for presumed acts of witchcraft. Now, witches. medical, yeah, come oh. here come the witches. See, um, some are reading. It's like an Anne Rice novel. But it's, but, but it's it about, but it's true. <laughs> Put it on the cover. I don't, I think that would be my favorite blurb ever. It's All like right, an Anne Rice novel, but it's true. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like Anne Rice. <laughs> I love Anywho. it. Yes, but yeah. go ahead. So all these you know, horrendous kind of theses and tracts about the female body being polluting and dangerous and dirty. They didn't cause this, you know, horrifying persecution of women for acts of witchcraft. But what they certainly did was contribute to this narrative that women's bodies were so potentially dangerous and libidinous and sexualized that they were the ones who were most vulnerable to consorting with the devil Mm -hmm. and bringing about his evil doings on earth. And again, what we see here is that the majority of people persecuted for this imaginary witchcraft stuff were women, about 75 to 80%. And many of them were older women. Yeah. 40. Ancient. (laughs) Can you even imagine? Oh, honey, I'd be the first one to the dunking booth. They would have me under so fast. Uh, they would be like, yeah. ew. My son is always like, mom, you have two black dogs and two black cats and you wrote a book. You would have been burned. Like, <laughs> thanks, thanks, kid. <laughs> yeah, you would have been so burned and we you wouldn't. You would have been all burnt all the way. <laughs> all the way. That's right. They would have burned you, taken that. And then burned it again. (laughs) Yeah. And then just in case, burned it a third time. Another little extra burning. And then drowned drowned the ash. (laughs) Nothing witchy about burning people alive. See, of course not. Of course. All right. I don't mean to be jumping as much as I'm jumping, but the pain, the shame, all tie back to control. And I got tired at one point of underlining some of the examples of this. So there was a period of time that really surrounded the notion of hysteria. But some of the things that jumped out were these held beliefs that one example was any woman who menstruated would become hysteric if her interests, hobbies, and thoughts hadn't been controlled from childhood Okay, so this goes to our education part as well and controlling that. American physicians who believed female biology made women insane. Just, the, I mean, for the moment, there was a really long period that like, essentially, if you were not having babies, you ran the risk of being insane. Like you were gonna go insane. Yeah. Right? That like anything, <laughs> anything you did was gonna make you Insane, right? So it comes back to that education control because, you know, once they start learning, it's like the old child book, if you give a pig a pancake. If you give a woman a book, yeah, she's going to want to learn another book. And then she's going to want to vote. Exactly. 
And if she votes, yep. she's going to leave you. She's and if she leaves you, you. <laughs> she's going to leave you. She's going to join a lesbian coven. Yeah, she's going to join a lesbian coven. <laughs> Who will iron your shirts? Think about <laughs> it, chaps. There's so much of the like, calm down and everybody is out of control. Mm -hmm. The burden of women wanting better medical care. God, it's such a nightmare. (laughs) And as we creep into quote unquote more modern time, this would be in the sort of early 1900s around the war, the First World War and the Second World War, where women, for the first time, really, weren't staying home because the men were all off fighting and the effects of this. And in 1939, Spring Rice published the findings in her book, Working Class Wives. She was covering these different conditions that women from the working class, suffered a lot of anemia, constipation, dental problems, bad legs, gynecological ailments, all of these different things. It was sort of one of the first times all of this was put in one place for us to all see. And there is this thing that she says, that Spring says, that I have underlined and I have photographed and I've sent to. I sent it to Teresa, everybody. (laughs) So, and it says... Most of these women shouldered the relentless burden of sacred responsibility. The emancipation for which many thousand women have worked in the last hundred years has had little or no effect on the domestic slavery of mind and body of the millions with whom rests the immediate care of a home and family. Gaboosh! We're into emotional labor. We're into... Absolutely we are. We're into, again... The lack of surprise that we are (laughs) revisiting again and again, like when everybody was in lockdown. And once again, women were the ones who were leaving their jobs. Mm -hmm. Women, for the most part. And yeah, I I guess, I don't know. I just really like that quote. (laughs) That quote is amazing. That quote and that piece of research was incredible. I mean, Marjorie Spring Rice, who was the woman who headed up that report, who wrote that report, was part of a committee investigating the health of working class women in England and Wales. And, you know, at this time in history, we don't have an NHS. Okay. So if a woman was married to a man who was in employment, then he might have some kind of insurance provision, but it was dire. You know, most working class people could not afford to be running to the doctor and nor did they have the time because they were burdened (laughs) by the work that they sheer amount of work they had to do to keep the beings in their homes alive. Uh, Have you talked to women today? (laughs) Absolutely. Exactly. This is ever green. And this is something again, that it's not silent invisible to people who are interested in this, but it's, silent and invisible to those in power. This is like a, this literally like a class, like Marjorie Spring-Rice is saying, of women who are condemned to this. And Marjorie Spring-Rice was a fascinating character because she was also involved in early birth control clinic movements and in wanting to empower women by giving them advice and reliable information about how they could limit their fertility. Because around that time, there was a lot of understanding that 
a huge burden of ill health, both mental and physical, was happening because women were not able to, you know, reliably control their fertility. And the only options that were readily available to them were like the old pull-out, last-minute pull-out method. I mean, yeah, of course. Great. A notoriously reliable way of doing things. Really reliable. And it's still your fault, lady. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Or the old, you know, as they were called, the old coitus interruptus. But also she was making the point, you know, many women involved in those kind of more radical, more socialist birth control movements were saying, listen, what you're doing, what governments, what, you know, power is doing by... You going, oh, mm, oh, we don't know, oh, they shouldn't have contraception inf- information, oh, no, it's immoral. What you're doing is you're not only condemning women to so have so many children, but you're also doing this incredibly dehumanising thing, which is taking away their enjoyment of sex and their bodies. You're then seeing your body as a battleground, as a potential source of pain and worry and fear which is, of course, what we see happening now, right? Yeah. This is absolutely what's happening now. And it's a technique and tactic of oppression and control is to make our bodies this source of pain and fear and not of pleasure and knowledge and enjoyment and power. I I really, we're going to bring it on home with that. Again, I go back to the question of how are we here again? and I think that question is actually a harder and easier for me to answer after reading this book, after seeing the history of control and the summing up your worth to being this vessel and the disregard for good care, especially mental health care, when it comes to really anybody who is able to give birth, but especially if you can't. Mm-hmm. It, it's not that easy to get pregnant, <laughs> despite what it was like when I was 18. It's not that easy to get pregnant. Mm-hmm. And the like the shame and the I, again, I just go back to this, the shame, the guilt, and it is still your fault mm-hmm. for all of it Yeah, is very disheartening. And I guess my final question is, now that you've seen it all, <laughs> you, you, have, you have seen it all right now. And you've put it in a beautiful book for us to all read at the beach. (laughs) What is next? How do we, like, there are lots of things I enjoy about my female body, right? Like, yay, I had kids. Yay, that was great. I love them. Not a fan of pregnancy or delivering Mm -hmm. children. That was a nightmare. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) But I I love them, right? Mm. But there's also... A continued, you know, that quote that I read hits so hard because that is how it feels. That oppression yeah. and that inability to move and make choices and to feel like a prisoner and from having kids and being a care provider, you know, these are things that still exist. And the sensation that I'm supposed to be good at it. I'm supposed to love mm-hmm. it. It's supposed to be fucking yeah. great. 
I don't know. What did you learn? Tell me something that I can take away. <laughs> Besides a pitchfork uh, and a sign. <laughs> well, yeah, of course, when I wrote the book, I didn't have any understanding. Well, I wrote it in kind of 2019, actually write, wrote the book, mm. sort of 2019 to 21. But I did not, I could not have foreseen what has just happened in the terms right. of the rollbacks of reproductive rights and the assaults on reproductive health. You know, I could not, we've always been fearful of that. Yeah. But I, well, of course you can imagine that it would happen. Of course, I hoped, I hoped it wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't have to be talking about that. These people that enforce these bans, that enforce these mechanisms of control, they have learned historically that controlling women's bodies is something that you can do and that it works and that you can use health and you can use medicine and you can withdraw it and you can manipulate it and you can take it away. That's a time-honoured technique in order to control women, to control marginalised people, to control people of colour. That is time-honoured. But also what we have now that we didn't have in the past is knowledge of our own history, is knowledge of what we did to create change and how all those rights that we've ever gained, rights to enjoy our bodies, rights to pursue thought and knowledge and professions, the right to help others, the right to be activists has come because we have pushed, we have worked, we have rewritten our histories and we have never stopped trying and never stopped questioning and never stopped going up against those systems of oppression because we have history on our side. They have inaccuracy and manipulation and misreading. That's what they do. They manipulate historical precedents and they misread science. We know from our history, we have more access to knowledge and understanding about how we got here than we have ever had before. And that is where our power comes from. And also the understanding that our bodies are our own, even when systems of power make us feel like they're not, they are. And there's a huge amount of power in that, a huge amount of power in testifying to your body experience, in living through and speaking about your body experience. Not all people want to do that. Not all people want to put their vulnerabilities and their traumas and their bodies on the line, but there are people who will, and we can speak for others who can't. So this is what I take away. I take away this knowledge that change has been made because of voices, because of pushing, because of forcing change. It hasn't been done because the people in power have suddenly gone, oh, you know what would be a fun yeah. experiment? Let's give women freedom. Let's <laughs> see how that might improve the world. It's always been about this power grab. I'm hopeful. I'd still hold on to hope. I really do. And I think that's radical. You know, it's radical to have hope. I also hold on to hope because I'm not in prison for having done this show for 10 years. <laughs> yep. And yep. I am... Also hopeful because, like you said, we also know our bodies better. We also yeah. understand what our bodies are doing and can mm -hmm. access that for the most part. There's a website. Yeah. We can Google it now and not we get punished. Well, no, well, I'll tell you. Well, not yet. <laughs> may not be able to Google it soon. So Google it Sorry. now, everybody, unless you live in certain states. Listen, keep your sources of information. Know where to find your information, people. Knowledge is power. That's right. Go get this book. All right. 
Eleanor, I honestly, we have had a wonderful time going well over time and I would do it again because we didn't <laughs> even get to touch on things really like the education or the number of times that I wrote in the margins. Oh my God, these were legitimized monsters. Uh-huh. <laughs> monsters. Yep. Stuff that like CSI wouldn't even do. Mm. You know, where you're like, oh my God, who Oh, oh yeah. you're fucking monster. Anyway, mm. <laughs> so we didn't even go there, everybody. But maybe we'll save that for a Halloween episode. Yeah, well, <laughs> if you ever want to rerun the fun, just let me know. I I'd know, I did think maybe we should. Oh, <laughs> no one will listen to that one. Uh-huh. <laughs> Real life monsters from history. Yeah. Everybody, you know where to buy books. This is another one of those opportunities. We will link you up if you're feeling burdened by everything that you have to do. So I see you. It's okay. We will link you up. This is a great one to get a copy of for yourself and for your library, local library, if they don't already have it. Eleanor, thank you for this work and getting our history into one place. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I've loved our conversation. And yeah, I would love to come back for a Halloween episode. Oh, yeah. Actually, I could also have you back on to be like, how are you raising your, like, how are you talking to your tea boys? Do you stay up at night and go like, yeah. oh, God, I fucked it up. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like yeah. well, you know, I say I got one of each, but they're changing those identities all the time. But I'm mm. constantly like, oh, God, am I treating them differently? Yeah. What have I done? Yeah. <laughs> am I, you know, yeah. so anyway, yeah. that could be fun, too. So, mm-hmm. All right. Thank you, Eleanor. Have a wonderful thank rest you. of your day. Thank you so much. This week, the greatest discovery becomes greatest trek. That's because greatest trek is for way more than just discovery. We're the hit show on Maximum Fun that covers all the new Star Trek shows. Lower Decks, Strange New Worlds, Picard, Prodigy, Discovery, and any other Star Trek show Paramount throws at us. Come check it out for our funny and formative recaps of all the new stuff this Star Trek industrial complex churns out. It's in your podcatcher every Tuesday. Subscribe to Greatest Trek. It's a new Star Trek podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation. Hey, you know what it's time for this week's Genius and Fails. This is the part of the show where we share our genius moment of the week, as well as our failures, and feel better about ourselves by hearing yours. You can share some of your own by calling 206-350-9485. That's 206-350-9485. Genius Fail Time. Wow. Oh my God. Oh my God. I saw what you did. Oh my God. I'm paying attention. Wow. You, Mom, are a genius. Oh my God. That's fucking genius. Genius me. Me. I will. The genius is I took Ellis to the doctor. Look at me. (laughs) Look at me. Doing a good job. Doing the thing I'm supposed to be doing. And... You know what? I'm going to say trusting our instincts that everything was okay and not forcing that kid to show us their feet. I really think somewhere in there is a long-lasting genius, but we'll see. Well, 
We'll see. Also, kudos to Ellis for the commitment. I mean, that is some serious commitment. <sighs> Hi, I'm calling with a genius. My four-year-old has learned to hate the bubblegum amoxicillin, which is pink, mm. and he has it way too much lately. And so he started complaining, no, I don't want the pink medicine. Don't give me the pink medicine. So I put in a drop of food coloring and made it purple, and now it's a delicious purple medicine, and he mm. loved it. I don't know. I'm a genius. Thanks for the hotline. Bye. You are a genius. Let's just check a box off for lying and what a great tool it is for parenting. We can also check off the box of creative use of food coloring. This was genius. This is so good. You know, guys, sometimes we we should just not go with the approach of the I'm going to rationally try and convince you, small child, that this is one way or the other. Just dye it purple and call it jello. It's fine. You are doing such a good job. This was such a genius. Failures. Fail, 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 fail! You suck. Fail me, me. Oh, okay. Yeah, Ellis is eight and going into third grade, and we just, we just never really taught him how to tie his shoes. I mean, we've taught him a couple of times, but I really feel this is one of those things in which consistency was important. And uh, we have not been consistent. And we got new shoes for the school year. And there's, they are some sweet, sweet vans that have to be <laughs> laced up and tied. And there's two issues. One, all of the kids take after me and they just kick their shoes off when they come home. So they don't untie them. So when Ellis wants to go put the shoe back on, it's very tight. And they just... the concept of loosening these like these laces is not there it just can't seem to it's very frustrating and then to tie it they can't do that so I've just added either a task for myself and I do not want it to be a task for myself do you understand but it's also probably added a good like 10 minutes to our morning routine right this is I'm just yeah I just a lot of failures, I feel like, are happening here. And we have five days to go until school starts. Huh. This is a fail. My three-and-a-half-year-old apparently enjoys coffee. <laughs> Why does he enjoy coffee? Because a few weeks ago, I let him have a taste of my Starbucks Frappuccino Hmm. And guess what? They are super sweet and delicious, and he loved it. And now even a regular iced coffee is something that he wants. And if my husband or I have something like that and we leave it on the table or out in the kitchen, when our back is turned, he will try to drink all of it. And he got into my coffee this morning and definitely did not take a nap today. So, yeah, I gave my toddler a taste for coffee. Mm. Doing a great job. Thanks. Is this Teresa? Is Teresa calling? <laughs> because Teresa, 
is the ruler of this type of fail. That woman has been given their kids coffee by accident or just as a, I give you a little sip. <laughs> or I'm just not paying attention and suddenly my child is gulping. You know what? It's okay. It's okay. This is, you're right. You are failing because now you'll probably never have a child that sleeps again and they're going to be a hardcore caffeine junkie. But, yep, you're doing a terrible job um, teaching. I don't know how to put this. I don't know what to say, guys. Yeah, no, kids probably shouldn't be drinking coffee, but uh, sometimes they try stuff. And, you know, at least they've got a very defined palate. So you've got that going for you. But otherwise, you probably should just punish yourself and never drink coffee again. (laughs) You are the greatest mom I've ever known. I love you, I love you. When I have a problem, I call you on the phone. Hey there, it's Annabelle Gerwich. And I'm Lara House. We host Tiny Victories, the 15-minute podcast that's about the little things. Getting into the tiny victory frame of mind is about recognizing minor accomplishments and fleeting joys. Isn't it a wonderful day when the first password you try actually works? When it's freezing cold outside and toasty as all get out in my shower, my tiny victory is that I turn off the water and get on with my day. We can't change this big dumb world, but we can celebrate the tiny wins. So join us on Maximum Fun or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's get tiny! Uh, All right, everybody, let's listen to a mom have a breakdown. (laughs) My daughter started pre-K three today. (laughs) And I was, you know, excited for her because she was excited and I was nervous for her because she is so sweet and so smart and so sassy. So, so stubborn. <laughs> she got herself potty trained after we went to look at the preschool last year because she wanted to go back. <laughs> but as soon as she came out today from the school, I noticed she was wearing her extra clothes that we sent. <laughs> she told me she had an accident. And then the teacher came up to me and said, Telling me that she needed to learn to go to the bathroom and be potty trained or she couldn't go to school, which is so frustrating because I know she is potty trained, but she's stubborn. And she didn't want to do the things she needed to. Sometimes it's hard to get her to do them. But she knows how. And then at one point, I guess she wasn't doing what she was supposed to be doing either. So she already had a time out at school. And I just wanted her to at least have a good 
Okay, I just want you to know that there are people listening all over the world right now to you who see you and who hear you and who feel you. You are doing a good job. Okay, let's break this down a little bit, all right? First days of preschool are really emotionally high stakes. They are high stakes be, for, for any number of reasons that we don't even need to list here because they're obvious. This is about your child, first steps of independence, also your first steps of some separation, separation for them. There is a lot happening emotionally okay so let's all sit and give you some grace for the big feels we have right now okay because those are right exactly where they're supposed to be you are doing the most normal thing right now so that's one two first days first weeks first months are always full of challenges and firsts and, you know, getting used to new routines. And let's, guys, we're not out of the aftermath of the pandemic, right? There has been a lot of time that our kids who are under the age of five have not had a chance to, like, socialize in the ways that were available to us before COVID. And so I can promise you, your child is not the only child who was in that preschool who didn't want to sit or didn't want to listen or didn't want to stop playing, you know, with whatever it was, (laughs) whatever it was. They are not the only child. Okay, that is actually developmentally the most normal thing that your child is doing, because let's all just set the bar for ourselves, guys. That is a little child. That is, you got what, preschool? What, three? Four? What? <laughs> there should be zero expectations when it comes to that, right? And so, and what an amazing kid you have who wanted to learn how to be potty trained, who wanted to get potty trained so they could go to school. Now that, that is epic. And even I don't know. Is this a phrase? The best of the potty trained. I don't, the, the Harvard of potty trained small children, whatever, guys, <laughs> have accidents. And let me just tell you, first days of school or pretty much any days of school when you are that age, it's not about being stubborn. It is about your child is engrossed in a new activity 
in a new place is very involved. And even if they were at home, if they were doing something really fascinating and interesting and new, they would not realize they needed to go to the bathroom. Okay? There, <laughs> there's no one should have super high expectations of that on little kids. Little kids get distracted and they don't realize they need to go. And teachers are there to help them remember and to help set up routines so that kids know at this time we'll be going to the bathroom. Also, I know it is hard to separate our feelings from our children's feelings and to not want to displace whatever anxiety we have about the world onto their experiences. And that is not easy, like at all. I still do that. I will do that until I die, probably. Oh, did my child become, uh, listen to me, did my child become president of the United States? Well, I'm going to sit here and displace my anxiety about whatever that involves on the experience that they're having. Guess what? They're not having the same experience that I'm having. So I think every day that she goes is a day to celebrate, a day to have popsicles when you get home, a day to say whatever it is that she comes back with. Like Ellis gets in trouble at school, in trouble. Ellis gets finds themselves in situations in which they are daydreaming or they are preoccupied with something else and the class has moved on to a new subject and they miss it and they get really upset, okay? And recently I took the approach of saying, like we were in the car driving and they said, they were talking to me, (laughs) asked me a question and I didn't hear it. And they were like, were you listening? And I said, you know what? No, my mind was wandering. I was thinking about something else. Does that ever happen with you? And Ellis was like, yeah, it does. And I was like, you get that from my side of the family. That's a, that's a Ellis thing. All right. And he was like, oh, yeah. So now whenever, <laughs> whenever it happens, they're like, I get that from your side of the family. I'm like, yeah, you do. Right. Like, look, none of us fit the perfect exact mold, whether we are kids or whether we are adults in the situations that are set up out there. So what we need to do is support each other in a family or with our friends and just let each other know that you get that from my side of the family and that it's okay. It's okay. Your baby is doing such a fucking amazing job. You are doing an amazing job. I, 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 I just, I am so proud of you. I see you. Everybody, we definitely live in a time in which that pressure of like feeling like all of our kids should be at the same place at the same time developmentally or that we should be at the same place at the same time developmentally all of these things, we, we, you know, it's really easy to take things in as criticism or to judge ourselves when we try to compare ourselves to others or others' kids. And the thing is, is we don't have to do that. Every kid is doing what they're supposed to be doing 
right at the right moment that they're doing it. And the same is true of you. Does that mean some of us need help? Yeah, it does. (laughs) Does that mean that we have to, if we're wired differently, if our kids are wired a little differently, that doesn't mean that we've done anything wrong or that they've done anything wrong. It just means we need to access the tools to help them and to help us. And I want to end on really talking about, like, I think my biggest takeaway from my summer read, Unwell Women, and my conversations with Eleanor and my conversations with all of you and listening to the hotline over the years and just the online community, it's not just our medical health, it's our mental health. We're being told it's supposed to fall on us only and that somehow it is our fault. And that, I mean, listen to the rant caller. Her baby had like, probably had a good day, but also a bad day. And like, somehow we're carrying the weight of that. We've all been there. That feeling of this is somehow my fault. I am bad. I did this. And the deal is, is there is very little resources out there for us to get things done. There is a system in place in which women are not encouraged to step out of the roles that we've been in eight minutes. You don't even get paid the same, for God's sakes. I mean, some of it's comical, comical. COVID hit, what happened? Who did most of the work? Who had to leave their jobs, right? Like, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Who's dying giving birth, right? Is a women, okay? And so let's give ourselves a little praise for having put up with it and go out and support each other and support everybody out there who's trying to make a difference. It's a lot. And you're all doing such a fucking amazing job. I see you. You went and you got school supplies. You went and you are potty training. You just had a baby and were put on, you know, some sort of rest situation because of, I have a friend who just had a baby and I was like, hey, how is it going? And they were like, oh, it was horrible. My husband had COVID during the delivery. Then I got COVID. I was separated from my baby for X, then my baby got COVID and we weren't able to be together for like two weeks. And I was like, Jesus Christ, that is a lot. Okay. I don't know. I guess I just want us to all know that everybody's got a lot going on and that that's okay. And that we can see each other. And you're doing it. And I will talk to you next week, guys. Bye. I got to low down mama blues. I got to low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. Low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. Got to low down mama blues. You know that right. We'd like to thank Max Fun, our producer, Gabe Mara, our husbands, Stephen Lawrence and Jesse Thorne, our perfect children who provide us with inspiration to say all these horrible things, and of course, you, our listeners. To find out more about the songs you heard on today's podcast and more about the show, please go to MaximumFun.org slash OneBadMother. For information about live shows, our book, and press, please check out OneBadMotherPodcast.com. 
One Bad Mother is a member of the Maximum Fun family of podcasts. To support the show, go to MaximumFun.org slash join. Well, Daddy, baby, fussing by, not throw down Mama Blue. Oh, said Daddy, baby, fussing by, not throw down Mama Blue. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.